You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. Uh, If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles under your seat or nearby, page 300 uh, is where you can find uh, that text in most of those Bibles. Many things uh, in this life are both and. Does that make sense? Many things in this life are both and. So it's not either or, it's not one or the other, but it's both and. For example, for example, uh, should we be serious people or should we be people who laugh a lot? Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, both and. Hopefully, there's times to be serious and times to laugh a lot. Uh, Is our society better or is it worse than it was a century ago? Well, it kind of depends on what we're talking about, I guess. Like, in some ways, it's better, and in some ways, it's worse. It's both and. Is rooting for Philadelphia sports teams enjoyable or miserable? That one might actually just be only miserable. That one could be an either or. But... Maybe you're you're getting your head into this a little bit. There are a lot of things that are both and. But what I hope you see this morning, if there's one big picture I need to take away from this morning, it's that the most important thing in life is not both and, it's either or. Either God is God or he is not. The God that, that we gather in this space to worship each and every week is either the creator, the sustainer, the savior of the world, or he is not. As we saw last week at the beginning of 1 Kings 17, this obscure man named Elijah enters the scene in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he immediately picks a fight. He starts a a confrontation. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and the people of Israel are worshiping Baal. They're worshiping a different God, not the God of their ancestors, not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Elijah comes and he says, essentially, both of these things can't be true. It's either Yahweh or it's Baal. And then Yahweh, through Elijah, stops the rain. He sends Elijah away for about three years. And so now where we're picking things up today in 1 Kings 18, it's about three years later, and Yahweh is about to bring both Elijah and the rain back to Israel. But in order to remove any doubt about who it is that controls the rain, who it is that rules the world, who it is that really is the giver of of life, there's first going to be a very public contest a contest to determine who is the one true God. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 17 and then read through verse 40. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, 
And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay, lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. All the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to know for certain this morning that you are the one true God. Help us to know your way, teach us your path, lead us in your truth, lead us in the truth and teach us for you are the God of our salvation and it is for you that we wait all day long. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this account from 1 Kings 18 uh, this God contest, as one uh, really good children's book puts it, includes actually four different layers of conflict. And each of these layers of conflict raises an essential question about faith in the one true God. So there's Elijah versus Ahab, which raises the why question. There's Elijah versus Israel, which raises the when question. There's Elijah versus Baal's prophets, which raises the how question. And then lastly, most importantly, there's Yahweh versus Baal, 
which raises the who question. Who is the one true God? So let's walk our way through those four things this morning. First, let's look at Elijah versus Ahab. Ahab and Elijah here meet for the first time in in more than three years. And as we read, the, the first words out of Ahab's mouth are, Is it you, troubler of Israel? So think for just a moment about all that these three years would have entailed. The famine we saw last week, the death, the suffering. It is truly a bleak and troubled time in Israel. Things are really bad. And this encounter between Ahab and Elijah raises the why question. Why are things so bad? Why has all this trouble come upon Israel and upon all the people? From Ahab's perspective, it's Elijah's fault. Things were fine. Things were moving along fine in the northern kingdom until Elijah showed up. But when he came and he prayed that the rain and the dew would stop, he ruined everything. So he's the one who is the troubler of Israel. Now the reality, of course, is the opposite. And so Elijah responds, I've not troubled Israel, Ahab. You have. You and your father's house, you're the ones who have abandoned God's commandments. You're the one who has followed Baal instead. There are a lot of commandments in the Bible, more than 600 of them in the Old Testament alone. And all of them are important. Uh, they're written for our instruction so that we might know the nature and the character of God, so that we might walk in God's way. But the commandments that Ahab was abandoning, they were not what we might call small print commandments. They're not the kinds of commandments that we forget about, that kind of get buried in size two font in the disclaimer of some of the longer books like Leviticus. We're talking about the first and the second commandments. And Chip read them for us a little while ago this morning. Don't worship any gods but Yahweh. And second, don't make any images of any gods. So Elijah is saying here, Ahab, you are an idolater. You are someone who is worshiping idols. And you have led the people that have been entrusted to your leadership, to your care as king, into idolatry. That's why things are so bad in Israel. Ahab is is the real troubler. And because of his example, because of his leadership, the people are living against the grain of God's design and God's purposes. Now, the fascinating thing here is that no one really sensed the trouble and the horror of the idolatry that they were participating in until Elijah showed up. It actually took the the disruption of these years of no rain and famine for the people to recognize that there might actually be trouble. There might actually be a problem. So in Elijah's conflict with Ahab, we actually get a glimpse into one of the great paradoxes of our faith, one of the both ands, if you will. And that is this, that God is both completely in control and that people, humanity, are completely responsible. Both of those things are true. So we are responsible for our sin. And our sin brings corruption. That's the answer to the why question. Our sin ultimately is why the world is so troubled. At the same time, though, the trouble comes by the sovereign hand of God. And at times we see in Scripture, God very actively sends trouble in order to open our eyes, in order to to help us recognize and to see what we're doing and how precarious a situation we're in. So like Ahab, we are idolaters. We are idolaters. Now, as far as I'm aware, and Chip was saying this earlier too, no one in this room worships Baal. No one has a Baal or an an Asherah statue or pole in their house. If you do, I'm fascinated by that. I would at least love to talk to you about it. But also maybe I encourage you not to do that. Maybe both of those things. But 
Even if not those things, we are all inclined to worship something or, to, or someone else that is not God. We're, we devote ourselves to other relationships or to money or to comfort or to power, any of a, of a thousand different things. And so like Ahab, we are responsible for the conflict. We are responsible for the enmity that exists between us and God. It's our sin that brings trouble upon God's world. Sometimes God will, will spare us the consequences of that, but other times God will allow us to experience the trouble, even send the trouble directly so that we can see it, so that we wake up. Now changing gears just a little bit here, uh, there are, if we think about it, a lot of people in our world today, a lot of people in our society today who are asking some variation of this why question. Why are things in this world so bad? Who is, who is making all the trouble for this world? And in at least a number of circles, Christianity and Christians are increasingly viewed as a reason. We're increasingly viewed as the troublers, as trouble for society, for the world. We should never deny that horrible things have been done by Christians and those who profess to be. We should never pretend like Christians have a spotless and perfect record or that we do everything right. At the same time, what I would say to you this morning is don't get turned around on this the way Ahab is turned around in 1 Kings 18. It is not the faithful people of God who bring trouble upon this world. It's the faithless. It's those who reject God and reject his design. In this cultural moment, we have to be really compassionate but we also have to be really confident and really clear. It is not, for example, the Christian sexual ethic that troubles the world. It's not the Christian sexual ethic that's troubling the world. It's not the Christian perspective on gender or marriage or the family. So long as we are being faithful to God and his commandments, we are not the ones troubling the world. Even when, like Elijah, we might find ourselves initiating a conflict by the way we live our lives or by our words. That does not make us troublers. The real troublers are those who reject or who abandon the commandments of God. The ones who follow the gods of their own making. Gods who, in the end of the day, are not gods at all. For the good of the world, for the good of the world, for the sake of souls in our society who are deeply troubled in this moment, be compassionate, but be clear. It is not the faithful. It is not the ways of God that bring trouble. It's the faithless. Now, that's only the first layer of conflict, so let's, let's keep going with this text. The second layer here is Elijah versus Israel. Elijah versus Israel. Uh, Elijah sets this very public contest on Mount Carmel. Uh, he tells Ahab to bring the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah. But as we read there, the audience is actually a lot broader than that. It's not just Elijah and Ahab and the prophets. The people of Israel are invited. And we don't know how many exactly show up, but but some significant number of the people of Israel are there to witness this contest. And Elijah poses another critical question to them. The when question. In other words, when, people of Israel, will you decide who really is God? Or as he says it, how long, when, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? So this is not one of those both and scenarios of life. This is either or. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. It can't be both. It's one or the other. A couple things to, to see here. First, Elijah doesn't speak to the people of Israel the same way he speaks to Ahab or to the prophets of Baal. Uh, Ahab and the prophets, they are 
brazen. They are entrenched in their idolatry. They're not only participating in it, they're leading other people to participate in it. And so Elijah is much harsher with Ahab and the prophets. He commands them throughout this text. He mocks the prophets. He eggs them on, as we read. The people of Israel, on the other hand, are indecisive. They're indecisive. They too are participating in idolatry, but they're wavering. They're wavering. And so Elijah, verse 21, and we see this throughout this text, Elijah comes near to Israel, or he invites them to come near to him, and he reasons with them, and he pleads with them. So we should see here in this text that when we are pointing people to the one true God, we don't speak to everyone in exactly the same way. We don't use the exact same tone or the exact same approach. We are always trying to discern where people are, what's going on in their life, what's going on in their heart, and try to respond to them appropriately. A bunch of years later, in his letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul has a really helpful summary of this. It's one that I go back to time and again as a pastor, as an elder in the church. But Paul says this, he says, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He's saying there, don't treat idle or lazy people the same way you would treat weak people or faint-hearted, weary people. We need to respond to people based on where they actually are and what's actually going on in their lives. We don't treat people exactly the same. And so as God's prophet, Elijah here, he wants Baal worship to come to a complete end. He wants to see the evil and the wickedness and the idolatry stop. But as he does that, he also wants to see the people of Israel redeemed. He wants to see them to come back, turn away from idolatry and worship God instead. I don't know how many of you guys are, uh, are YouTubers, get stuck kind of doing deep dives on, on YouTube, but a lot of YouTube videos, and many of you know this already, uh, have clickbait provocative titles with the word destroy in it. It's like so-and-so destroys so-and-so, like in an argument. Like they're having an argument, it's like a mic drop moment, so-and-so. So a couple I came across this week, comedian destroys social justice warrior, or dairy farmer destroys vegan activist. I guess they felt like vegan activists needed to really be destroyed in argument. So that was one. Okay, at 1 Kings 18, were a YouTube video. The title of it might very well be, Elijah destroys Baal worshipers. And that's true. But the whole story is that as much as God wants to eradicate Baal worship, he desires that none of his people would perish. He desires that Israel would repent and would follow him again. And so Elijah keeps coming near and compelling them and pleading with them, stop wavering, stop wavering, make up your mind. The second thing to see here is that Israel isn't actually as neutral as they might first seem. They are wavering, that's true, but functionally they've actually chosen Baal. They've neglected the worship of Yahweh. And so notice, for example, which altar is in disrepair on Mount Carmel? Which altar's been broken down and has to get rebuilt? When when Baal's prophets go first, they jump right in to their rituals. But Elijah has to rebuild Yahweh's altar. The people are vacillating. They are limping between two different opinions, but they're not really as neutral as it first seems. And so Elijah here, even in how he goes about rebuilding the Lord's altar, he sets out to remind them who they are. He sets out to remind them of their real identity. He uses 
as it says, 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes. But if you remember, if you were here last week when we kind of set up the background of these books of the Bible, this is after the kingdom has divided. So actually in the northern kingdom of Israel now, there's only 10 tribes, not 12. But Elijah doesn't use 10 stones, does he? He uses 12 stones and he's saying, this is not who you are, Israel. You're not Baal worshipers. More than that, you're not even a divided kingdom. You're not supposed to be. You are the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is your heritage. That is your history. That is who you are. And he goes on and does the same thing then with the jars of water. Four jars of water filled and poured out three times. I am no mathematician, but I can do that math. That's 12 jars of water on 12 stones. And with each stone that he builds this altar, with each jar that he pours out, he is pleading with them, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Because in the end, your wavering, your indecision is still idolatry. So return to your identity. Return to being the faithful people of God. Now we need, you and I need, this very same call. Those of us who believe in Jesus, those of us who have committed to follow him, we are still prone to waver. We are prone to wander. We have our own indecisiveness, our own double-mindedness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said very clearly, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have two masters. But some of us functionally in the way we live say, well, maybe we can. Or at least maybe we should try and see which one works out better. It's worth a shot. And if it's not money, then it's comfort or it's success, or it's recognition, or it's power, or it's whatever else it might be. And so today, in your own soul, in your own heart this morning, listen to Elijah's pleading question. When will you truly decide, Christian? When will you decide? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If money is God, if power is God, if pleasure is God, then follow them. Make those your God. But if the Lord is God, follow him. Follow him. The third layer of conflict here in this passage is Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. And this conflict raises the how question. The how question. In other words, how do we communicate to, how do we relate to the God who is there, the one true God? How does God hear us and respond? Is it by ritual or is it by revelation? Is it by frenzy or is it by faith? For Baal's prophets, the answer is clearly ritual and frenzy. And so they bring numbers, 450 prophets, and they spend way more time, nine plus hours. They think that their rituals can coerce, can manipulate Baal into doing what they want him to do. And so when after the first few hours of doing this, Baal doesn't answer, they just double down. They whip themselves into a frenzy, including self-mutilation, cutting themselves, just doing whatever they possibly can think of to try to get Baal to respond. Elijah, though, knows that our interaction, our relationship with God is not primarily by ritual, but by revelation. That God must reveal himself to us and that he reveals himself on his terms and not on ours. And so when it's Elijah's turn, he says, God, let it be known that you are God. He says, answer me that this people may know you are God. He's saying, God, 
You have to reveal yourself, so reveal yourself. Make yourself known this day in this moment. And rather than a frenzy like the prophets of Baal, Elijah here opts for very simple faith. Simple faith. So here's something to think about. By far, most of the praying that happened on Mount Carmel on that day was not done by Elijah, but was done by the prophets of Baal. And it's not even close. 450 prophets, nine or more hours, that's more than 4,000 man hours of praying from Team Baal. Elijah's prayer, 60 Hebrew words. 60 Hebrew words. It takes less than 30 seconds to read those words. Men and women, God does not hear you because of your many words. God hears you because he is God. He, you can know him because he has made himself knowable. You can communicate with him because he has made himself communicable. I love rituals. I love liturgy. I love order and structure to things. Our rituals, though, mean nothing apart from his revelation. Our frenzy cannot manufacture or manipulate a single thing. But our faith, if it rests in the one true God, our faith can move mountains. So let us be people of faith, not frenzy. People of truth, not of empty ritual, not of just trying to chase some kind of emotionally heightened experience. We need to always be considering not primarily what we feel about God in any given moment, but what he has revealed. We need to ask other people not only what their opinions are about God, but whether their opinions are actually rooted in his revealed reality. And of course, at the end of the day, the how question and all the questions come down to and depend upon the who question. How we communicate with God depends at the end of the day on who God actually is, on who really is the one true God. And so fourth and finally, let's look at this last layer of conflict, which is Yahweh versus Baal. Who is the one true God? That is the question in Israel in the days of Elijah. And it's the point, really, of this text. It's the point of this God contest. And so as Elijah says in verse 24, the God who answers by fire... He is God. From all outward appearances, and I'm sure it it came across this way as we read it, from all outward appearances, the odds are stacked heavily in Baal's favor. Way more prophets, way more time. The king and the queen are on team Ahab. They're on team Baal. And Baal is the rain god. He's the storm god. And so in in the ancient Near East, in a number of their different artistic expressions, Baal was depicted often holding a lightning bolt. And so this contest is actually right in his wheelhouse. All it would take is a well-aimed bolt of lightning, especially after three years of drought and how dry it is there. All it would take is a well-aimed bolt of lightning to take care of this contest, and Baal would be God. And then for his part, Elijah takes Yahweh's odds and, and takes them from improbable to impossible. He soaks the bull and the wood and the altar with 12 jars of water. Now, where he got the water in the midst of the the drought, that's a great question. People debate about where he got that from. Everyone is desperate for this commodity. He takes 12 jars of it and dumps it over the altar. And he makes it clear in that action that that no natural phenomenon is going to be responsible for this. Even if there is a lightning bolt, it's not going to take care of this. And when it's over, this massively mismatched contest only serves to accentuate the outcome. As it says there in verse 29, with Baal, there was no voice, 
No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal is nothing. He can do nothing. This God is no God at all. But with Yahweh, verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell. And not only were the bull and the wood consumed, but the stones and the dust and the water in the trench as well. See, as an idol, Baal is nothing. But so definitive is Yahweh's victory, his fire leaves nothing. And in doing so, he leaves no doubt. This is also why Elijah, at the end of this passage, orders Baal's prophets rounded up and killed. It's kind of a stark ending to our scripture reading this morning. Maybe you felt that. It ends with with that. And and to our modern sensibilities, we're going to struggle with with that, many of us. And it's hard. It is a hard word. It's a violent and permanent consequence. And for example, we, we never know why Ahab eventually gets an opportunity to repent for his idolatry, which he does later. But why these 450 prophets don't. We're never given an answer as to why Ahab gets that chance and these guys don't. But what we need to see in 1 Kings 18 is that we need to be resensitized to something that we are so easily desensitized to. And that is that sin is serious. Idolatry is serious. We need to see how much of a corruption and perversion idolatry is. And we need to see in this text that God will not allow idolatry to go on forever. An Old Testament scholar named Raymond Dillard puts it this way. He says, Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal is a mini enactment, an anticipation of that great battle when God will intervene in history to vindicate his name completely and to eradicate idolatry from the world. In other words, see in 1 Kings 18 that there is a day coming when God will judge the world in righteousness. When not just Baal, But all idols, all idols will be exposed for the nothing they are. And there is no place for idols, there is no place for idolaters in the renewed, remade kingdom of God. Their portion, the Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 21, their portion is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There is only one true God. It is not both and, it is either or. And we see that very clearly and very plainly in 1 Kings 18. But church, herein lies the hope of Yahweh's decisive victory over Baal. The fire from heaven, the fire which represents the holiness and the presence of God, is not only a fire of judgment, but a fire of mercy. What does this fire become? Look there again at verse 38. What does this fire become? It becomes a burnt offering which is the central picture in the Old Testament that the one true God will accept a substitute, will accept a sacrifice, a sacrificial offering for our sins. Baal's prophets are going to be put to death for their sin, for their idolatry. But the people of God need not be and were not on that day. The people of Israel need to see here that God is acting in power to turn their hearts back. He is taking it upon themselves to purify them of the idolatry that they have embraced. And so the fire that seals the judgment of Baal is the fire that atones for the sins of the people. God exalts himself here not only to show his superiority, he exalts himself not only to judge the idols of the world like Baal, he exalts himself, Isaiah chapter 30, to show you mercy. To show you mercy. 
And see, because Yahweh is the definitive answer to this either or who is God question, you and I actually have the hope of what I think is the best both and in the world. And that is this, that the one true God is the God of both judgment and mercy. He's the God of both. Centuries later on another mountain, in a way that that no bull or goat could ever accomplish, Jesus Christ became the substitute, the sacrificial offering for our sin. And on the cross, this ultimate act of God's judgment in the very same moment became the ultimate act of his mercy. Sinners and idolaters that we are, we need not die in our sin. God can be both just and the justifier because of the work of Jesus. That mountain, that second mountain, also played host to a God contest that day. Satan, who is described in Scripture as the God of this world, and his fellow enemies, sin and death, sought victory over the one true God. And in the hour of Christ's death, they thought they had it. They thought they had it. But just as on Mount Carmel on this day in 1 Kings 18, victory belongs to the Lord. By his death, Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. By his death, Colossians chapter 2, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. And as if that weren't enough, Jesus did not stay dead, but God raised him up. And so you and I now get to look sin and death in the eye. And just like Elijah did with the prophets of Baal, we get to mock them. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your staying? We get to say with the people of God throughout the ages, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Men and women, if this is true for you, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? This is an either or. Jesus either rose from the dead or he did not. And so if money or power or pleasure is God, follow them. Follow them. But if Jesus Christ really died and really rose from the dead, follow him. Through the finished work of Jesus, may you know today that the Lord is God, that he has exalted himself to show you mercy. May you see and believe that he has moved in power to turn your hearts back. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we look to you this morning and rejoice in the great mercy you have shown us. We see the seriousness of our sin. We see the folly of our limping between different opinions. And we rejoice in the victory that you have accomplished by your death and resurrection. May we be people ever conscious of your mercy who rejoice in your great victory. We need it. We're desperate for it. And we ask now as we prepare to come to this table where we see both the judgment and your mercy together in your finished work. We see the beauty and the worth of what you've accomplished. So help us to come. Help us to be strengthened by the grace that you provide. Help us to be people who single-mindedly follow you, the one true God. We pray that all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.